Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. The last time I was with you, we looked at Genesis chapter 3 and the temptation of Eve. So this morning we're going to look at another temptation account, this time the temptation of Jesus himself. I think that kind of makes a logical connection and I hope a practical one for us. If that message was what we must not do in the face of the tempter and temptation, this message is what we must do in the face of the tempter and temptation. So if you'll follow along with me in Matthew chapter 4, let me read verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. In these verses, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we have a monumental an epic spiritual battle, a personal confrontation between Jesus Christ. This is, if you will, a confrontation between the seed of the woman and the serpent himself, if you remember back to Genesis chapter 3. It's interesting to note, think about this, no one else was there except our Lord and Satan. No one else was there to observe it. No one else knew the scene. Yet we have a fairly detailed account here of the exchange between Satan and Jesus. So it's obvious that the only way we would have known this is Jesus himself had to tell it to the disciples so that we could know about it. That being the case, I would conclude that it's, it's important, there must be something special here that he wanted them to know and he wants us to know about how to gain victory over temptation. Now, we're jumping into this particular narrative, so if you will, allow me a few minutes to set the scene for us. Whenever I teach the life of Christ, one of the recurring themes that's in almost all of the scenes of the life of Christ is his entire life was contrary to expectation. I want to drill that phrase into your thinking, contrary to expectation. Just about to say everything about his life, the fact in spite of the fact that the Jews were looking for the Messiah, in spite of the fact that he came to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures, they were missing the fact that he was actually the Messiah, that he was the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament scriptures. In fact, even his miracles and his teaching, which are meant to prove that he's the Messiah, don't actually become proof until after the resurrection. 
It's kind of amazing that uh, throughout his life, almost nobody really understood. Certainly his opposition didn't understand. The crowds didn't understand. By the way, anytime you read about the crowds in the Gospels, the crowds never get it, not really. And, and even the disciples don't seem to understand until, again, after the resurrection. Because everything about his life is contrary to expectation. Think about it. His parentage, where he was born, except for the fact that uh, Scripture tells us it's Bethlehem, this obscure place where he grew up in Galilee, the kinds of experiences that he had even when his uh, ministry began, all of his teaching, contrary to expectation, it wasn't, wasn't the kind of thing they were looking for. What kind of Messiah were they looking for? They were looking for a Messiah who was going to come and deliver them from the power of Rome and bring in the kingdom of David. That's the Messiah they were looking for. And it's not, even, it's not even the Jews. I mean, the kind of stories that we read in the Gospels, aside from the fact that we're so familiar with them. I mean, here's the problem. We read the stories in the Gospels and we go, he was born in a manger in Bethlehem. And we go, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that fits, right? I'm from Iowa, okay? Uh, I can tell you a manger is not where you put a baby, all right? A lot of you city folks, okay, think manger, ancient crib. No, okay? It's a feeding trough, okay? It's really contrary to expectation. It's not what you would expect. And again, how he grew up, then when he started teaching the things that he taught, not the kind of thing they expected from the Messiah. Uh, and the things that he did, okay, he did some miracles, but who did he do them for? He did them for lepers. He did them for old ladies. Sorry, ladies. He did them for... He, he did them for people you wouldn't expect. And the entire time, the, the leadership is trying to kill him. But it's, this, this is contrary to your expectation. The kind of Messiah that we read about in the Gospels is contrary to what the Jews were expecting and even what the world would have been expecting and frankly, even what we might be expecting. Again, except for the fact that it's so familiar to us. His entire life and ministry was ordained by the Old Testament, prophesied by the prophets, but he still didn't fit. And I mean, if, if we're honest with ourselves, think about this. Is this the way we would expect the second person of the triune Godhead to make his appearance on this planet? Is this the kind of thing that we would expect the sovereign God to do when he finally arrives? The kinds of things that we might expect him to do, oh, he is going to do when he comes the next time. But this was all, have you gotten it yet? Contrary to expectation. In fact, the scene right before the scene we're going to be looking at this morning, the scene of the baptism, again, contrary to expectation, even incongruous for those that knew him. John the Baptist even sort of resisted. No, I need to be baptized by you. It wasn't, it wasn't right. It didn't fit. But he came to be baptized. And that baptism, that very unexpected baptism, ended with that mysterious, marvelous confirmation, an awesome display of the Trinity, the Son's humility, his submission on display, the appearance of the Spirit, empowering him for this ministry that he's about to engage upon. And then the, the, the magnificent, beautiful, mysterious, awesome. And, and we use that term way too much, right? 
you know, I'm, dinner last night was not awesome, okay? <laughs> wherever, wherever you ate it, okay? It's not awesome, okay? Awesome is when the sovereign God speaks anything. And here he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now you would think, now we're ready to go. Now we're ready to go. Now we're going to see things happen. He's got this confirmation. He's got this great testimony. And what happens next? Contrary to expectation, he heads out into, he's driven out, we're going to see, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I know. You go, well, yeah, that's the next thing. I, I got that from Iwana. I know what's coming up next. Uh, you know, I, I know this stuff. This doesn't fit. You're going to be tempted? You're going to tempt him? Temptation? In the wilderness of all places? By the devil himself? And what we're going to see is a very typical pattern where after the spiritual high, if you will, of the baptismal scene, there's the temporal low of the temptation. Keep that in mind, friends. I mean... This is quite often the way. Do come to the Truth Matters Conference, but beware of the week right afterwards. The spiritual high is always followed by you got to get back to real life. And real life can be a bummer many times, most of the time. <laughs> why, do we have this, why do we have this scene? Why, why would this scene be revealed to us? Let me give you two reasons for the temptation of Christ. The first is so that Jesus' victory over temptation would do what all of the other scenes are doing, is confirming his messianic mission. Again, in ways contrary to expectation, but it confirms this is another confirmation, not in the ways that we might think, but certainly, definitely, he is the Messiah. He's qualified. He passes this test. He's able to go to the cross for us. And the second purpose is so that his victory over temptation could be a pattern for our victory over temptation. And that's the aspect I'm going to be highlighting for us this morning. So we're going to be noticing as we go through this that temptations are meant specifically to confirm Jesus as the Messiah from the devil's standpoint to question that and, and then from the Lord's standpoint to confirm it. And then again, how to face these temptations. Because like I say, last time I left you here with how not to do it with Eve, and now we're going to find out how the Lord does it. In addition, one author says, we are given clear and applicable insights into Satan's strategies against God. You know, he's got wiles that we're supposed to know about. Well, we're going to be focusing on some of the wiles of the devil right here so that we can have victory side by side are shown the ways of danger and the way of escape. By the way, I will be saying often, assert, or someone has written or something like that, that's John MacArthur, okay? I know where my bread's buttered around here, so, so uh, I'm, I'm, I quote him a lot, okay? Where I came from, you could quote him a lot and people would go, oh, well, you know, but now it's like, you know, well, we already know that, so, uh, but I got to keep on with my tact. So let's begin the... Uh, the pattern here is, I'm going to give you it in a moment, but let's begin because there's an opening scene in verse 1, and I want to make three observations, or there's three observations about verse 1, so look at it again. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Again, 
then he was led by the Spirit. Luke adds he was full of the Spirit. Mark, in Mark 1.12, makes this even stronger. Immediately the Spirit compelled him. The word is ekvalein there. He was thrown into the wilderness. He was driven into the wilderness. And that's a key point because what that tells us is that this was no accident. He didn't stumble into temptation. It wasn't something that uh, comes from within for him, as it might often come for us, but he was pushed in. He was thrown into that situation so that it's not happenstance. And by the way, again, it's pretty clear the devil's aim was to discredit Jesus. The Father's aim in this testing is to accredit Jesus. And at the end of the account, that's exactly what we see. But the other side, the other, the other reason for this, again, is for us to see that, that faith is something that will be tested. Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment when we get to the word for temptation. The spirit led, the devil tempted. Second, into the wilderness, the wilderness. The wilderness was an area in Judea just southeast of Jerusalem, just west of the Dead Sea. It was a, a desert region. If you've been there, you know that this is a very dry, hot, desolate, barren, lonely, Palmdale <laughs> kind of place. <laughs> sorry if you're from, sorry, sorry. The point here is think about, think about the contrast between where Jesus' temptation is taking place and where Eve's temptation took place. Eve's temptation took place in the garden. Jesus' temptation takes place in the wilderness. Eve's temptation was about one piece of fruit on one tree, and Jesus' temptation is about is there isn't any bread anywhere at all. The contrast is striking. Jesus was alone, hungry, in a desert. Adam and Eve lost their battle with Satan in an environment that was pristine. They'd had fellowship with God regularly, and they were full, but they wanted more. That's temptation. One more item in the setup, to be tempted by the devil. The tempter is identified as the devil, Diabolus, verses 1, 5, 8 and 11, that name means accuser or slanderer. He's identified as the tempter, Pirazan. He is, we're going to talk about that word again. And then Satan, which means adversary. Listen, we're probably not going to be tempted by the devil himself. No amens, right? I thank, thank God for that, right? Of course, every time I say that, my wife says, don't say that, don't say that. <laughs> You're drawing attention to yourself. Well, don't worry. It's not going to, don't worry. But he has wiles. He has minions. He has his, his allies, his allies, the world and the flesh that uh, work along with him. And they have these tactics. So beware, be sober of spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The word for tempted here is actually a neutral term. It has no nefarious connotations. Sometimes it means test, sometimes it means tempted. The, the, the idea, however, of enticement is always there. The idea of, uh, of sometimes to evil enticement, but often not. It's just something that is uh, it's neutral, it's morally neutral. It's like advertising, right? I mean, uh, advertising, it's not, it's not morally wrong, but then again, you know, it's, uh, it's an enticement of some kind. 
There's nothing wrong with seeking some bread when you're hungry. There's nothing wrong with taking a calculated risk if by doing so, even if we do so, we stub our toes or we take an occasional loss if the trade war doesn't go on that long. But nevertheless, there's nothing wrong with trying to get ahead in the world. We should work hard. But what these temptations show, just to anticipate, there is something seriously wrong with serving yourself, seriously wrong with living to eat, serving the flesh, as if God never wants us to be hungry or suffer at all. There's something wrong. There's a problem with testing God. There's a problem with living on the edge and then expecting God to bail us out. And there's a problem with putting oneself in the pursuit of the world, money, fame, and power, ahead of the life of obedience to God. Now, if you're paying attention, I just preached the entire message in that last two minutes. So uh, if you want to check out, I'll tell you when it's about to end and you can come back. In short, living for one's worldly self instead of worshiping and serving God is always going to be, if not the whole, at least a major part of what temptation is always doing. So let me say that again. Living for one's worldly self rather than worshiping and serving God Somewhere down is always a part of what temptation is about. Temptation is many, many times about perverting God's good things to us, morally neutral things for us. We pervert them by selfishness and worldliness. We direct them toward ourselves. Temptation is about, listen, taking a shortcut to satisfaction. Temptation is taking a shortcut to a full fulfillment in life. Temptation is taking a shortcut even, listen, to our ultimate destiny. We think we can take a shortcut to a rich, even eternal life. That's kind of, the, again, the outline of what we're going to see here. Before we get to the temptations, let me give you the pattern because each one of these three temptations follows a particular pattern. So we're going to look at the circumstance of the temptation. That's really just kind of the setup again for each one of these. Then the tempter's proposition, that is what the tempter is actually proposing. But then we're going to look at the premise of the devil. What's the devil's premise? What's underneath each one of these, these proposals or these propositions? Then we'll look at Jesus' response. And then we'll look at the principles that were to draw from Jesus' response. So there's five items, the circumstance, the proposition, the premises, then the response and the principles. So there's, there's the whole outline. Well, let's get to it. The first temptation actually begins in verse 2. That's, that's not part of the setup. It's really part of, the, part of the temptation. It's a key part, actually. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. I like that. He then became hungry, okay? He had 40 days and 40 nights, and then he became hungry, all right? Uh, it's the difference between me and Jesus. 40 minutes, and then he became hungry. Uh, we're not told what he did for those 40 days and 40 nights. No doubt he was praying and fasting. We're not, we just get right to the end of that. And I have to tell you, there's no special spiritual significance to 40 days, okay? The 40 days is not the purpose, See what I did there? 40 days. 
It's probably an echo of the 40 days and 40 nights that Moses spent on the mountain. And there are other 40s of this and 40s of that in Scripture. But there's nothing special. There's nothing spiritual about 40 days of purpose or any other thing about it. He was hungry and after a season of prayer. Now, many, many commentators, many people have noticed that temptation seldom happens when we're the strongest, right? Temptation doesn't happen when we're, when we're really up there. It's after we come down. Temptation happens when we're the most vulnerable in places where our reserves are low and we're physically and emotionally or even spiritually drained. That's, that's why after you have a high, spiritual high, you think you're full, but actually you're kind of drained. And uh, that's, you know, be careful. Temptation comes when we're feeling sorry for ourselves. In those times when we think that we deserve a break. Temptation comes when our guard is down and we're unwatchful or unmindful. Or, listen to this, temptation comes when we foolishly think that we have earned a pass. Think about this. Well, we think we've earned a pass. How, how might that be? Well, sometimes we, sometimes we think we've earned a pass when we were going through some hard times. Look, I mean, you know, I, when, I, when I had cancer, I thought, okay, you know, I, just the fleeting thought. Now's the time to live it up because who knows? You know, that's the kind of thinking. I deserve, I deserve a little fling because I've been so faithful for so long and I'm dealing with this problem. I mean, surely God will give me a break if under these circumstances I just take a little liberty, I indulge myself with a little sin. In my notes, the word sin is real tiny right here. We may not verbalize it that way, do we? We don't verbalize it that way, but we kind of think that way. We, we've earned a pass. We've earned a spiritual mulligan. But you never do. You've got to be very careful. Again, there's nothing wrong with seeking bread when you're hungry unless you bypass God's provision and God's will. So that's exactly what the devil suggests Jesus do. Look at verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, the way that this is expressed, the if clause there, the conditional clause, suggests that Satan knew uh, that he was the Son of God, but still there's a question. And it's not even a question of whether he can do this. I mean, the whole temptation is predicated on the assumption of Satan that he is, or at least he claims to be the Son of God, and he does have the power to turn stones into bread. And here's what the temptation really is. Here's his premise. For Jesus, specifically, the devil is subtly suggesting that simply being hungry, or frankly, any inconvenience, or any deprivation of any kind is incompatible with the status of the Son of God. Wait a minute, you're the Son of God? Well, how is it that you're hungry? You're the Son of God and there's plenty of stones. Why don't you just make some bread? Why don't you just serve yourself? You've earned it. You deserve it. Applied to us, the premise is God would not want you to be hungry or in want or deprived or suffering or by implication have any physical need, any personal want, anything like that is sufficient reason for us to be self-centered and ignore what God has clearly commanded for us, which is to be obedient and subordinate to his will. 
that's a, a, of course, that's a false premise, right? I mean, you can see that, right? You, you, you don't earn you know, sin credits. You, you don't earn a pass. You, you don't get a spiritual mulligan for having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And, and you don't get it even if it's, in Jesus' case, a legitimate physical need. We don't think that way right out loud, but how about if we did? I have the right to be happy. That is, as I define happy, and if God is not making me happy, well, I'm not happy, and I have the right to be happy, and I'm going to do what I ever need to in order to get happy, and I don't have to wait for God to make me happy, and he needs to be happy with me finding my own way to happy. <laughs> happy, 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 right? Clearly, that's not true. We wouldn't say that bluntly, except maybe for a small child. Right? You know, small children do this sort of thing. They, they let us know when they're not happy. Like children who announce, I, I love this, when children announce to their parents, I'm bored. You, know, you ever hear that? Like it's an accusation. <laughs> right? <laughs> like it's a command. I'm bored. Implied. Do something about it. Listen, when I was a kid, if I would have told my parents I'm bored, I would have found myself with a shovel in the backyard digging a hole. <laughs> But we have spiritual versions of that sort of thing, right? We have spiritual versions of letting God know and other people know we're not happy and we deserve better. We deserve happy. Well, aren't we prone to that sometimes when, we're, when we're, we think God is unfair or deficient or he hasn't lived up to everything we've expected or we're hurting or even if we're suffering truly and we think that a little bit? Again, we'd never say it out loud, but here's Peter had to remind his readers in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. And he had to say that because some of them were thinking that it was strange. Some were surprised. We're, we're, without a surprise. We know this. We know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. Of course, God is always good. But when sickness or loss or slander or disappointment or even hunger befalls us, are we not tempted subtly to think, wow, God, this is strange. This, what, what's happening to, to me here? I mean, we're sophisticated enough not to say, you know, what are you doing? Why, God? No, we don't say it. We have subtler ways of sort of conveying to God, hey, what's up with this? Or worse, we might be tempted to reason that since we know that God is good, this is the point of this temptation, by the way, since we know that God is good and he wouldn't want us to be deprived or unhappy, that it's okay for us to do whatever it takes in order to serve ourselves. God doesn't want me to be deprived of success. Therefore, it's okay to cut a few corners in business, ethically speaking. God wants to meet all my needs, so I'm going to give a little less to the church right now. God wants me to have a comfortable life, so I'll serve a little less. God doesn't want me to be unhappy, so I'll go along to get along and if I have to compromise my faith in a couple of different places, that's okay because God wants me to be happy and comfortable. Again, many people, even Christians, seem to think that they should get whatever they want, give up nothing, be whatever they want, indulge whatever they want because, you know, that's God. He's good. He would want that, right? He wants to make me happy, right? 
No. No, he wants you to be holy, and he wants you to be devoted to him. Listen, back to the point here. Jesus would not serve himself, would not satisfy himself, would not supply for himself even a legitimate need of bread when he was hungry if that meant serving self in a selfish way for selfish reasons rather than trusting God and waiting on his provision. He would not compromise his devotion to God even to serve himself. That's the heart of the principle. So Jesus' response, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, this is pretty obvious too. This is the, this is, I mean, this is a sophisticated crowd and you know where I'm going with this. How does Jesus respond to Satan's temptation? Well, he does it with the word, right? How does he overcome the devil? He does it with the word. He quoted scripture. He quoted the book of Deuteronomy. I love to do this for my students. Okay, look, Jesus succeeds in resisting the temptation of the devil by quoting Deuteronomy. You have not been as successful in resisting temptation. How much Deuteronomy do you have, okay? You ready with some Deuteronomy here? You know, here's your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Oh, how I love thy law. Are you able to bring Scripture to bear at just the right point if the devil comes to you. Notice, side note, Jesus thinks of the written word as the very words from the mouth of God. So just a theological note. Here are the principles. The spiritual must take priority over the temporal. The spiritual must take priority over the temple. All the time, every time. Now that's honestly not profound, but it is hard. In fact, it's contrary to expectation as both the world and sometimes we think. God's will, listen, God's will does include hardship and even suffering because it refines us. It turns us to him. It gets glory to him as we learn to depend upon him, as we're strengthened by him. One of the best things about suffering is it weans us off of ourself or exposes how dependent on self we actually are both good things. Lacking bread or suffering illness or facing persecution may be exactly what God wants for us because he is good and these things serve us for our good. Now, I don't use myself as a a servant illustration very many times, but if I use my family, I get into trouble. So, when I was diagnosed with cancer, people asked me, What did you learn from that? And my response was, not a lot. (laughs) Not that I missed it, but it only reinforced what I already knew, okay? I I had been a pastor for a long time and I was diagnosed with cancer and I thought, this is great, this is great. I'm gonna learn what it's like and I'm gonna just, I'm gonna listen to this. I get to hear this. By the way, the doctor that diagnosed me from cancer gave my test results to me on my answering machine at home. Yeah, yeah. Hello, uh, Mr. Zuber. Yes, it's cancer. Okay, you got to make a follow-up appointment. <laughs> so I got a different doctor, okay? <laughs> and, and I sent him a book on how to break bad news to people, okay? Uh, but uh, what, am I, what am I supposed to learn from this? Look, I'm, 
I, it's no surprise. It wasn't a surprising thing, but I was going to learn. I was list, well, listening all the way. What am I supposed to get from this? Okay. And uh, I remember laying on the gurney right before I was going to go into the operating room, and some guy came and he says, I have to prep you for surgery. And I said, okay, you may be the last person I talk to before I go under. I want to tell you about Jesus. He says, I'm a Christian. Find somebody else. Get somebody else. Get somebody else, okay? You got to get somebody else for me here. All right, get somebody else. He said, no, no, we haven't got time. Oh. Oh. Waking up in the recovery room. My wife will testify to this. I'm waking up in the recovery room. And uh, I don't remember this. This is related to me later. I'm waking up and somebody says, uh, hey, how you doing? We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Okay. <laughs> Do you know Jesus is your savior? You know, yeah, honey, just breathe. Okay. <laughs> I just had surgery last year on my shoulder. I woke up out of surgery reciting the 23rd Psalm and asking the nurse if she went to church. You know, my wife has gone, oh, geez, you know, <laughs> live with a preacher. Look, what do I learn from this? What I learned from suffering is, is that that's the natural course in a Genesis 3 world. What did you think? And why does God allow it into my life? And the whole point of that whole story is this line. I never want to hear you have cancer again. I wouldn't give up that experience for a million dollars. Trusting God. When, when it's right, you're right on the edge, in the place where, humanly speaking, it's contrary to expectation that you would worship and praise God, and you do, not, not because I'm a super saint or anything like that, far from it, but I got nothing else. I got nothing else. This is what I've learned. You can have all the world, but give me Jesus. And God is good. He's good in those situations. He's gooder than we know. I know it's bad English, great theology. He's good, <laughs> gooder. He's good. One time I was uh, putting some roofing on, the, on my house, and my sons were small and they were in the yard, and I was putting some roofing down, and I hit my thumb with a hammer. I, I mean, I, I smashed that thing. You know, I was really wailing, bang. And, uh, you know, my former unsaved days flooded back into my mind. I had a long vocabulary of things that I wanted to say. <laughs> but I just kept pounding the roof with the hammer saying, good, 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 good. And my boys kept running, dad, dad, what is it? What is it? What's good? Yeah, God is good. It's more important for us to know that God is good, good, good than it is for us to be happy, happy, happy. He is a loving Father who already knows our needs and will provide in His way, in His time, in His measure, for His purpose. See Matthew chapter 6. Second temptation, look at verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And he quotes Psalm 91 in a couple of different places. Did, are you surprised by that? The devil knows scripture? The devil can quote scripture? 
I heard uh, Mark Dever one time that says, yeah, the, the devil knows scripture. He, in fact, he said he knows, he knows scripture better than the students at Southern Seminary. Al Mohler was right there. I said, not TMS, but nevertheless, okay? And say, I didn't say, I didn't say that. Are you surprised that the devil knows scripture? You gotta know scripture as well as the devil. Look, the temptation here is two-sided. I want you to see this. Because he says, throw yourself down. He, he took him to the pinnacle of the temple. The pinnacle would have been the southeastern corner, right above the Kidron Valley. And for people that have never seen, you know, skyscrapers, a 450-foot drop would be just about the biggest thing you can imagine. And uh, that's where he was standing there. Throw yourself off. Two, two sides to this temptation. The first is be spectacular. You need to be spectacular, right? If, you, if you're going to be, if you're inaugurating your ministry, this is the way you do it. Do something flashy. If, uh, if it was around today, get a laser light show. Do something like that. Sensationalism has always appealed to the flesh, and many people are willing to believe almost anyone or anything as long as the claims are accompanied by fantastical happenings. But the second temptation, the second part of this, I think, is, is more subtle and the key. This is a temptation to force God's hand. It was a temptation to force God's hand. Throw yourself down, because you know what will have to happen if you are the Son of God is He's going to come and He's going to protect you. He's not going to let you land. Now, you say, well, can we force God's hand? Well, no, we can't force God's hand, of course, but we can try. And we often try. People often try. This happens when a verse or a scripture is taken out of context or misapplied, as this one was, promise of protection. Just one example. Psalm 37, verse 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well. You know, I want that on needlepoint, right? Uh, you know, put that one up there. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Because I got a lot of desires. I want a Lamborghini. So I buy a Lamborghini. No, not really, but I'd say if I did. And then, here's how you're trying to force God's hand. I expect God, who promised to supply all of my needs, to help me make my payments, right? So I bought the Lamborghini, and now I say, God, I need bread. <laughs> You see how that works? You know, we, we kind of think that that's, that's an attempt to force God's hand. Of course, that's backwards. It's not that you get your desires fulfilled and then delight in the Lord. It's you delight in the Lord, and then that changes all of your desires. Uh, so, Prius, whatever. <laughs> no, we cannot force God's hand. We really can't. But listen to the devil's premises on this one. Applied to Jesus, for Jesus specifically, the temptation was an entice enticement to bypass the obscurity, the effort, the self-sacrifice, to basically bypass everything else we read in the Gospels, everything else about his life and ministry. The foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. All of that, all the misunderstanding, all of the, the self-sacrifice, bypass all of that and just jump into being the Messiah. Just let everybody know you're the Messiah. Just announce it. Just, just make a big splash. No, no, well, just, you know, just jump. You won't make a big splash that way. Applied to us, Satan wants us to think that God will protect us even if we're presumptuous, even if we act foolishly. I've, I've often said there are members of, this is being recorded anyway, members of my family 
who, who God said, Kevin, you got brains and initiative. I'll be taking care of these people over here, okay? You ever know those kind of people? Their life is like a pinball in a pinball machine. They just bounce off of one thing. It's one crisis after another. And, and, and through it all, well, you know, God's going to take care of me. Really? That's, that's presumption, folks. That's the kind of presumption. It's not faith to live as we please and expect God to bail us out. Some people do live that way, even Christians, right? It's not faith to use worldly or ungodly methods to draw a crowd and then not ask God to bless our ministry, be spectacular. This is not to suggest, by the way, that we never take risks or we are, to, we are never to extend ourselves for God's service. We are. It may cost us wealth, friends, family, reputation. But when we take risks simply to fulfill our ambitions or put God to the test, he gives us no promise on which we can rest. The last part there was a quotation again. Besides, sensationalism always has diminishing returns. If we're going to increase the size of the congregation with a dog and pony show, James Montgomery Boyce always said, you need a large stable and an extensive kennel because you got to start teaching the doggy to ride on the horsey's back and then the horsey to ride on the doggy's back and, and then you have to have a laser light show while it's all going on. It doesn't work. Sensationalism will never accomplish your ministry and presumption is not the promise that Scripture gives us. So what is the, uh, what's the response here? The, the, the principle is, again, that trusting in the Lord for what His Word actually says not twisting it into some other meaning are the promises that we can stand on. By the way, if, if you're listening carefully, I've just given you what happens underneath the whole philosophy of the prosperity gospel. We can force God's hand. Wrong. Well, the third temptation, look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, we don't know where this happened. It likely is an actual mountain someplace, but it's clearly a visionary sort of experience so that he can see all the kings of the world. I will, all these things I will give you. Could the devil make that kind of a promise? Does he have that kind of a promise? Well, yeah. He's, John 12, 31 says he's the ruler of the world. But no, devil's tenure as the god of this world is not not long, it's only temporary. Glory and dominion that he offered to Jesus would be for only this time, for only this world, for this temporal life. Satan can offer a lot about this passing temporal world, but he can't do any more than that. And Satan's price is always immeasurably more than he leads us to believe. What he gives us is always immeasurably less than he promises. Another quote. So what are, what's the premise here? Again, for Jesus and then for us. For Jesus, the premise is the path to glory laid out for Jesus by God the Father was the way of earthly humility, hardship, obedience, and a cross. Satan suggests you can take a shortcut to all of that and have all of that if you'll just worship me. Of course, that's utterly unfathomable that we would think that Satan would make that kind of an offer to Jesus or that he would even entertain it at all. Of course, he doesn't. The entire program of God for the second Adam, redeemed creation, restored Israel, redeemed body of the church, salvation of sinners would all be thwarted 
He'd, he'd be the king, but he wouldn't be the king of kings. You'd have a kingdom, but he wouldn't be what he's promised to be. Jesus' path to ultimate glory was the way of the cross, and you've heard this many times, without a cross, there's no crown. But Satan essentially makes the same kind of worthless promises to us. Serve me now, and you can have heaven on earth. Serve me now, and you will have everything the world offers. Serve me now, he says, but it's a lie. And there have been many, many who have shipwrecked their life thinking that it's an exchange worth it. I'll take everything in this life and exchange that. What did the Scripture say? For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? There's a little parable in Luke chapter 12 about a guy who's called a fool because he had more of the world's wherewithal than just about anybody else. He had so much, he had to tear down his barns and build new barns, and he was a fool. But did you notice this? Look at Jesus' response in verse 10. Jesus said to him, go, Satan. Go, Satan. Now, that's more like it. Eve, are you paying attention? Go, Satan. Go. Abrupt, sharp. In fact, there's, there's, this is, don't try to be coy. Don't try to be clever. Don't, don't try to make a nice, socially acceptable exit. Just go, go. Here's how John Owen writes it. Our Lord has shown us what our deportment ought to be in all suggestions and temptations. When the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them to tempt him, and this is the key here, he did not stand and look upon them, viewing their glory and pondering their empire. How different than Eve. Don't stand there looking at it. Don't contemplate. Don't start doing a cost-benefit analysis. And don't think, by the way, you can play the devil's game for a while and then switch to Jesus' side in the end. Get thee hence, Satan. That's Owen. Wouldn't it be great if, if, if grace life just made that our motto, okay? Get thee hence, Satan. Can you imagine what everybody else is thinking? Your coworkers. You're just standing there working one day and I was like, get thee hence, Satan. What are you talking about? It's better than throwing an ink bottle, you know, the way uh, Luther did. But you get my point. You don't parlay, Owen says. No dispute. What you have to do is you have to see it for what it is and instantly recognize that's Satan's word. That's God's word. God's word is true. Get thee hence, Satan. You, have to, you can't play nice with temptation is what I'm saying. Don't play with it. Don't look at it. Don't, don't. That has to be our guiding principle. This is exactly what Eve should have done. This is exactly what we should do. This is not rocket science, spiritually speaking, folks. When you recognize temptation coming up, you need to say, get thee hence, Satan. Or if it's the flesh, you need to say, get thee hence, self. Get thee hence, world. Right? I had a man one time that was struggling with pornography comes into the pastor's office. Get this. He comes into the pastor's office, puts a big box of stuff on my desk. I said, what's this? I open it up. 
a box of pornography. This is pre-internet days. My first thought was, God, get this out of here, okay? You see the deacons walking in, you know? What are you guys studying today? <laughs> out, out. So I could tell this was a creed occur. This is a cry of the heart. Help me, help me. So I said, okay, we got to start dealing with this. I said, does your wife know? Oh, no, she does now. I started dialing the phone. No, no, you can't do that. You were telling her. Right now, right here, right now. You got to, you got to, we had to cut this thing off. And then later on, I said, uh, you know, where did you get this stuff? Obviously not looking to sort of get it myself. I, where did you get this stuff? I wouldn't even, I wouldn't have no idea. Okay. I'm, 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 I'm one of these completely naive people. All right. I have no idea. I didn't know. Where did you get it? He said, well, there's this little bookstore I pass on the way to work. So I let that go for a minute. And then a little bit later, I said, wait a minute, where's this bookstore at? He said, well, it's over here. And I said, yeah, but you work over here. You live here. So <laughs> on your way to work, okay, that's a little out of the way. And uh, I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going you're gonna to tell your wife I'm leaving for work. It takes you 10 minutes. You're going to call your wife when you get to work. This is before cell phones, okay? You're going you're gonna to do this. You're going to call her right away. Really? I have to do that? Yeah. Because you got to cut it off. You got to stop it right now. You want to deal with temptation? That's how you do it. Another illustration. I was dealing with a, a couple who was having marital problems. And they come into my office, and she's crying. And he's disgusted with her for crying. And I'm going, well, what's up? And he says, tell her. Tell him. And I said, what? She's she giving me a really sad story about these people. They're divorced. The baby out of wedlock. Other people have can't. I mean, I'm thinking, you, you're a jerk, man. If this is her family, no wonder she's crying. But he said, no, no, it's a soap opera. <laughs> she's watching soap operas all day. And she's just emotionally wrecked over that. I said, well, you got to stop watching the soap operas. Oh, I just like a little noise in the background or something like that. So I asked him, I said, do you know, do you have like those shears, you know, to trim bushes? And he said, uh, yeah. I said, well, bring that in the house and cut the plug of the TV off right there. Just, just slice that thing off, you know? He looked at me like, you serious? I said, I'm serious. Jesus said, cut your hand off, okay? I'm a little less dramatic, right? Just cut the plug on it. He said, well, what if I want to watch TV? I said, well, you're handy. You can wire another plug, <laughs> stick it back on there. She said, well, she'll watch it the next day. They cut it off again. Court on the TV gets short enough, then everybody's going to be happy. <laughs> In all seriousness, folks, what, what we're learning here is don't monkey around with temptation. When you see it's there, cut it off. Stop it. Do what Joseph did. Run. Just run. You, gotta, you just get thee behind me, Satan. Use the word of God in order to stop temptation in its tracks. Right then, right there. The principles, our worship and service, obedience and submission is for God alone and nothing else. To serve anyone else, to serve anything else, to put anything else in front of God, idols, money, fame, power, pleasure, happiness, self, is not just blasphemy, it's a violation of the first commandment and, and will prevent you from the ultimate destiny of enjoying your salvation with him for eternity. Temporal glory, honor, ease, fulfillment, satisfaction is not to be sought in this life. The world is meaningless without Jesus Christ. 
Now, if you've if I've lost you along the way, come back, okay? Because I got a quick summary of the temptations again. What did we just learn? Here's the summary. I've already said each temptation is a, a temptation to Jesus to take a shortcut. Take a shortcut to immediate physical satisfaction. Second temptation, take a shortcut to fulfill your ministry and, and actually be the Messiah. And the third temptation is take a shortcut to your ultimate glory and instead of waiting and going through all of that, you can be the king of the world right now. Temptation says take the shortcut to satisfaction. Take the shortcut to meaning and purpose and value. Take the shortcut to a rewarding life. Take it now. Do your own thing now. Live your best life now. Somebody said that one time. Jesus said, it's a lie. Satan is a liar. The one who takes the devil's shortcuts never does arrive at his destination. And let me add this. If you're here and you know you've been listening to Satan's lies, You've been taking the shortcuts. I want to appeal to you pastorally as a brother in Christ. Stop listening to Satan's lies. I'm not trying to be funny here. Shut Fox News off. Stop listening to the pundits of the world who are creating dissatisfaction in your life and recognize that's the nature of our life as Christians here. It's contrary to expectation. We're not supposed to find our ultimate fulfillment here. We're not supposed to be ultimately happy here. Thank God sometimes we are. Happiness is something that we get to enjoy. But when you make that your ultimate end, you start taking shortcuts. You're listening to Satan's lies. Stop watching, stop listening to the adver advertisements or at least mock them the way I do. You need to recognize that although we have made fun of it, this is not your best life now. Your best life is yet to come. You, the, the whole key, and I'm out of time, but the whole key for understanding how to deal with temptation is you need to keep the eternal perspective. This world is not our home. It's okay if we get cancer. That may be a way that God actually gets more glory to himself. It's okay if we're not successful in business. It's okay if our family doesn't understand us. It's okay. You know, it's okay to go without some bread now and then. It's okay. Just don't compromise. Don't give up on obedience and trust and hope. Those are the things that temptation tries to rob you with. You will be tempted, but you have Jesus' example. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the way he resisted. And keep this in mind, for since he was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. It's a great promise, right, from Hebrews 2.18. Listen, it's only for those who don't take the shortcuts. 
Jesus is not promised to come and help you after the shortcut doesn't work out. You're going to face the consequences of that. You have to resist the devil, get thee hence Satan. And you knew I had to get to this eventually. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And I've had dozens of people say, what's the way of escape? Scripture, memory, Deuteronomy, get thee hence, Satan, that's it. It's not rocket science. And I love this. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels became, began to minister to him. Verse 11, that's great. The temptation is not irresistible, it seems it. It's not. The temptation is not interminable. It seems it. Like it is, it's not. Jesus shows us the way. But I have to add this, close to the end. Luke notes that when the devil left him, he did so until, quote, Luke 4.13, until an opportune time. He wasn't done. Resistance is never futile and it's never final. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers is Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the truth that we know you are good. We thank you for your physical provision. We thank you for your spiritual protection. We thank you for your eternal promise. Keep us from serving self. Keep us from self-centeredness and self-promotion. Keep us from presumption. Keep us from faithlessness that masquerades itself as trusting you. Help us to genuinely trust you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Finish the message in hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.